It is Monday, May 22nd, 2023, and welcome to episode 223 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that gets you quickly up to speed three times a week on the national security and foreign policy debates shaking up America. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow, and I'm joined today by Jessica Jones, uh, who is yet to have her own superhero movie, and Morgan Vigna, NSI Senior Fellow, sitting in for our own beloved Jamil Jaffer. Thanks, Morgan, for being with us. So today we're talking about the G7. Uh, the G7 is the group of countries made up of the United States, Canada, the UK, Germany, France, Italy, and Japan. Also, the EU has people who go to the meeting, but that somehow doesn't make it the G8. I've never quite figured that out. But it's the G7 with uh, eight political entities involved. A lot of stuff happened at the G7 last week. Two big news items, one concerning the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Biden administration announced that it is now willing to support the transfer of F-16s, fighter aircraft, to Ukraine to help them in their much-discussed coming offensive against the Russians. Uh, this is a change in policy. The administration had not been supporting F-16s. It's not clear that the U.S. will actually be providing the F-16s, but will support them legally and, and process-wise and bureaucratically. And also, the U.S. will help facilitate the training of Ukrainians to actually fly the F-16s, which, of course, is an important component of having the F-16s and being able to use them. Uh, so that's kind of a big news note. Notably, President Zelensky, uh, president of Ukraine, was in Hiroshima, Japan, for the for the G7 summit, he did. A, he's been doing a lot of diplomacy lately. Uh, he was meeting with uh, Arab states in the Middle East to persuade them of the value of of coming over to the Ukraine side. Uh, he met with uh, leadership from India, and he met with the G7. He's kind of doing a real tour tour de force here of diplomacy to help the cause in in and also in anticipation of this coming offensive. So this is kind of the first big issue coming out of the G7. I think that the question here for us is, what do we think of this administration decision to embrace the F-16s? They had not been doing that for a long time. Now, all of a sudden, it's happening. Morgan, what are your thoughts? So I think there are three things here. First, this is a fundamental recognition of Ukraine's commitment to the war. Uh, They're going to fight until Ukraine, all of it, including Crimea, is free. Zelensky has demonstrated real leadership and has advocated for his country on a global stage that certainly I have never seen before. Um, so Ukraine is really just demonstrating real results here when everyone thought that they would be overtaken by Russia within days. Second, international pressure. The Europeans wanted this and finally, you know, Biden caved. Thing three, congressional support. I think it's interesting to note that both Republicans on House Foreign Affairs and Senate Foreign Relations have called for this. Um, they've actually criticized the administration for, you know, moving too slowly on, you know, authorizing the transfer of F-16s to Ukraine. So I think there's you know, some political backing here, which which does help as well. Uh, fascinating. And, and I like your point, Morgan, on uh, the administration possibly caving to European pressure on this issue. The Europeans have actually been more, certainly lately, more forward leaning than the Biden administration, which is shocking to me because I had thought the Biden administration, a few months ago, I'd kind of seen the Biden administration as leading and pushing the Europeans to be more aggressive. But let's, let's drop a pin in that and, and kind of reflect on, on our second point also. But before we get there, Jones, what are your thoughts on, uh, Ukraine diplomacy at the G7. So it's funny that Morgan, uh, you guys discuss caving to European pressure because the converse side is so the communique that came out of the G7, uh, you know, took a strong stance on China. Um, and, you know, 
China, uh, Beijing came out and, um, you know, summoned back their Japanese ambassador, like is, is very angry, um, of being called out. The community, I think, mentioned China like 22 times. Uh, but, you know, we are talking here, the stories indicate that we're now talking about de-risking versus decoupling. And I know there's some people who think that's the Americans caving to the Europeans about being a little less hawkish when it comes to China. Um, and, you know, we talk here a lot on the show about how Europeans leaders or, you know, don't see Taiwan the same way they see Ukraine. Right. And so it's, it's hard to get them on the same page, but it seems like here we're all toughening each other up a little bit. Actually, I, I don't see a big, a lot of Delta between de-risking de and decoupling. I think China knows the intentions what? behind it. It doesn't matter what the term is. They're angry, right? Like they just kicked out Micron this over the weekend, like in this perfectly timed like action. So I don't think it matters what we call it. I think that you see Europe at least maybe not angling up as quickly as we want, but I think coming to the to where the U.S. is on China. Right, yeah, I'll, I'm going to jump in here for less for a hot second. I, I, well, I understand that words have meaning. I, I agree with Jess, and that I don't really think they matter in this case. You know, this was a joint statement, and there needed to be consensus here. You know, de-risking has less of a negative connotation and implies diversification, whereas decoupling sounds more like a divorce, right? So the United States is going to pursue its own economic policy towards China, and the Euros are going to do what they do. I don't really think we should just spend too much time, you know, worrying about this. So you guys are not worried about yet another administration where the U.S. is leading from behind and letting the Europeans kind of pave the way for a mamby-pamby approach to these It's two fundamentally separate things, Wes. Completely separate things here. <laughs> really? Because I see, I see thematic alignment on, uh, on Ukraine and on China, where the administration is, is like not super sure of itself and not, doesn't kind of have the confidence that it needs to really go get, go, go get them in the international fora. And maybe you have, it's just possible the administration has a chief spokesperson in, in the president who is not super capable of leading rhetorically and morally and physically and verbally and all of those things. And so they're, they're like, so I, I get the sense that kind of the, the Biden brain trust is like, all right, let's push the Europeans forward. Let's kind of agree with them on some of these word choices and let's try to make it look like we're all in agreement here, but we need them to help push us along. Is you guys are not, are not concerned about that coming out of this G7 summitry? I think these two things are apples and oranges. They're completely separate here. De-risking, decoupling. I don't really care what you call it, call it as long as we maintain <laughs> like a fundamentally strong economic stance against China. Right. I mean, yeah, um, I think their communique so. like called out nuclear arms, Taiwan, like economic coercion, human rights abuses. Like, I mean, it's it spells it all. It lays out like a unified position on China, like whatever you want to call it. Uh, Les, you're really heated on it. What 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 would you have liked to see come out of the G7? Well, like like so. This is you know this is this is kind of my critique, I guess, of G7. First of all, it's not seven; it's eight. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, they're they issue statements and policies, and they kind of get everyone to agree and stuff. And I guess there's some kind of value in it. But what does it actually mean in terms of the things that you do, right? And we've seen the administration now lagging the Europeans on support for Ukraine of all things, right? This is, this is, this is a little bit shocking to me. We expect the Europeans who live with the Russians, you know, just a few miles away to be a little more willing to compromise on stuff. That's not true anymore. It's the, it's the Europeans stiffening the spine of the Americans and, and like pressuring the Biden administration to come along and say, uh, all right, we're willing to support more, you know, more sophisticated weapons 
systems for Ukraine. That that does concern me. Like the the U.S. ought to be leading this this whole. This is kind of the Biden version of leading from behind. That's what I see, and uh, and it and it does give me a little bit of pause. I'd like to see our our president out there being the one pushing the envelope, particularly with Europeans. All right, any final comments, my friends? I would just like to point out that Zelensky stood up Lula um, at the G seven, which. There will, there will be consequences. There will be consequences. Less thinks it's because Lula wasn't wearing a suit, but like, who knows? Who really knows? No, because Zelensky was. Oh, Zelensky. Suit. Yeah, <laughs> I did see his, his photo. He, he was someone's. Here. Someone will blame the you know the wardrobe because that for for whatever weird reason that seems to be an issue with Zelensky and people criticizing him over what he's wearing. It's absurd. Okay, that's a wrap. Thanks to Brooke Aga Khan from NSI and Claude Jennings for their help producing today's episode. Join us again on Wednesday for another episode of Fault Lines, the podcast that gets you smart fast on the national security debates shaking up America. Fault Lines is also now on YouTube, so check out our page there. And if you like what you heard and saw, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 